Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, thank you so much. It is indeed an honor to be here and to be here with two of my wonderful colleagues. The term beloved community was not really coined by Dr. King. It came from a person named Josiah Royce. In 1913, he wrote that his life is basically meaningless unless he could be part of a community. And he talked about the daily communities, but there is an ideal community, he said, to which we must aspire. And that ideal community is for those who are seeking justice, uh, who are seeking truth. It is an honor to have the opportunity to talk with two truth seekers, two people who have been extraordinarily committed to the beloved community, to social transformation. I think whenever we meet great people like Danny Glover and Gus Newport, we want to know how did they get involved? Uh, what led them? Um, what kind of inspiration did they have? Who were the people in their early lives who might have influenced them? And so I want to begin by just getting some biographical information in terms of the people who illumine a path for the two of you in terms of social justice, beloved community. I'm going to start with Gus. Who are the in people who influenced your life? Okay. Well, the person who had the most influence on me is my grandmother, who lived to be 98. She was born in a little place called Horse Pasture, Virginia. <laughs> she went to school late one morning in the fourth grade after picking cotton. And when she walked into the classroom, a white teacher slapped her without even asking a question, and she walked out of school and never returned. But she became an avid reader. They got married very young in those days, and she got married at the age of 16. Her husband was 18. They had their little wedding. They were going on a little two- or three-day honeymoon, got stopped by the Virginia police and the Ku Klux Klan, who took their presents and threw them in jail. And she made up her mind then that she was going to get out of the South as soon as she could. And she had cousins in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So when my mother was two, she picked up, because her husband had been wounded by then in a mine accident in West Virginia, moved to Pittsburgh and then to Rochester, New York, where I was born, where she had a half-sister. At the age of five, my grandmother started taking me to see Paul Robeson and Marion Anderson. <laughs> and I never, I can't even begin to explain what a process that is and what it does. But I began to see how broad she was with limited education because we lived in, we were poor, working class, and we lived in a community with a lot of rental property and stuff. But a lot of young white female teachers started moving to our neighborhood. My grandmother would always host a reception for them mm. and have us kids from the Southern perspective call them Aunt Jane and Aunt Nancy, and those kind of things. That gave you that beloved community sense of society. It was people like that who had come from the, dis the, 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 the founding of this country, which I still say is not a democracy. Mm. As my good friend, and Danny's good friend, Bob Moses says, this is not a democracy, this is a caste system. <laughs> and we were with his project, the Ellsberg Project, that he used to train sharecroppers in Mississippi in the 60s to learn to vote and stuff. And we saw Bob a few months before he died, a year, year and a half ago. And when I came back after he talked about the caste system, I came back to the Bay Area, and there was a program out, and some people from India with PhDs and stuff who were working in Middle Silicon Valley said, you know, we came to the United States to get away from a caste system. We came to the United States and found the caste system. Mm. So even though I speak of the beloved community, don't get fooled by liberal BS and other kinds of things that list, exist today. I'll be 88 in two months. Mm. And, and still, I started out in, in, in the civil rights movement getting hit by a policeman when I was 11 years old. You know, a black boy walking down the streets and this and that. I'll, I'll stop right there for the moment and let the brother Dorsey with it. Unless you yeah. come and tell me to keep going, but you know, I'm old country boy. I'm old country boy, so I don't know when to slow down. So, uh, all right. Well, you're going to come back since we hear from Danny in terms of some of the earlier influences on his life. <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's um, 
when you think about all the influences in in one's life, you um, it, it begins with the kind of foundation I had as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, my extraordinary mother and father. And um, I kind of, I fell in love with them. Yeah. You know, I was the oldest of five children. And there was, there was something about the way in which they uh, communicated and, and really were devoted to being parents. I, I've never, my dad loved being a father. He's, he was the shortest one. He had rickets as a child. <laughs> so he was the shortest one in the whole family. Everybody's six feet except him. I, I, and, and certainly my mother and I. But I think they had the most incredible impact on me um, early on. And, and because in, 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 in terms politically, yes. the, the really, the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. I was nine years old. I remember seeing, watching those photographs, and I said to myself, I wanted to be like those people. Mm-hmm. And even though I had, I had, I had spent a, t- a great deal of time being raised by my grandmother, because my mother had th- three children. She, she lived with three children, thirty-five months. Mm-hmm. So she said, <laughs> "She said, I know." <laughs> <laughs> I can see the women in the audience. <laughs> but, but the wonderful thing about that was was that she 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 loved her mother and father, and and I mean really, and she says, and there's a story. There's always a story, and the most thing when we talk about you know our stories, our stories, you know, and my grandparents, Reese May Huntley. And and uh, Mac Huntley, Rufus Mac Huntley, uh, were born at the turn of the at, at at the end of the nineteenth century, and and they 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 were they came together. My grandmother was a midwife, not just a midwife. I mean, she she was a, a, a the great witch. She the rumor is that she delivered. Half of Jefferson County. <laughs> so that's what you. That's the rumors. You can find everyone. I met people in New York. I met people in Boston. I met people who, in some places, from Louisville, Georgia, my grandmother. Been. And uh, and the stories that that I heard, you know, about 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 life and the story, just just the the, the one story. When they were sharecropping, my grandparents, like I said, they were born, they were, they were married in, in 1915, and they were sharecropping, and the overseer came to say, Risa May, where are those children at? And, and my children's in school, when there's, when this, he said, it's not raining outside, how come they're not out here? There's children in school. When they're school, they don't work in the field. And as that set the tone, because they're kids, and so the overseer turns to to Mac. He said, "Mac, you better teach your woman how to." He said, "Wife, you teach your woman how to talk to to white people." But she was a midwife. She delivered not only poor <laughs> black people's babies; she delivered poor white people's babies. You know, she she was that 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 was the foundation. But she made sure those children, all of them went to school, all of them went to college. Hmm. So my mother was the first to graduate from Payne College in 1942. Mm-hmm. She, she, so that, that, that foundation, and was, so she could leave me and my sister down there for a year because she's expecting that, that, that third baby. But that kind of, I think that's the, the embodiment and the bottom floor of my experience and my memory you know, and my 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 sense of, um, you know, that the, the, the larger world, there's a larger sense of yourself, self, and then there are things that happened in my life that allowed me to, to be in a position. You know, I remember when we had the, uh, 40th anniversary of the strike, 
on on uh, that we we instituted at San Francisco State to steal the strike that came, that allowed to come into existence the first school of of ethnic studies in the country, and that's what we fought for the coalitions all all those all those particular things were were interesting. But I think I I, I when when I think about that 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 strike when I think about my life it all comes from from beginning the beginning source. I, you know, when I saw those m men and women, young people, children walking, walking, not riding, but refusing, like it had such an impact on me because it had an impact on my parents as well. They validated the experience because of that, that they validated what I saw because they were there tied to the, the same television looking at that moment and you can hear you can hear in their their the prayers and everything else in their own eye. and so that, i think that that was the so the, the so, and i was in love with them you know i was in love with my mother i was my my daughter's godmother and said me and my mother argued like girlfriend and boyfriend. I said, we were, we were, <laughs> she was, she was my first girlfriend. You know what I'm right. saying? I'm thinking she was. That's beautiful. It, she was a great woman. You know, I, I remember. She, she was the regional president of the National Council of Negro Women. She was very close to Dr. Dorothy Height, and uh, I mean, she, 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 uh, when she, uh, when she. She stepped out of Louisville, Georgia. She she was going somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. you know, you mentioned the strike at uh, San Francisco State. Um, I was involved with that too. At that time, I was the uh, an intern with Reverend Cecil Williams. And I actually had the opportunity to call the leaders, black leaders, especially in the East Bay as well as in San Francisco, and tell them what time we we're going to meet and where we we're going to meet and so on. Yeah. What kind of, but one of the interesting things about that, and you mentioned it, is the fact that there was a coalition there yeah. across racial lines. We're so not only talking about black studies, progressive Chicano studies, Chicano, Asian. Yeah, it, it was an amazing coalition, and and and, and I think. I think we learned something, particularly the Black Student Union. A number of the the, the men and, and women who came back to school after, I really, I, I would say, at that period they spent down in the South, part of Freedom Summer, and all that, and came back to school and, and, and brought ideas. I think this was a great time to be a student, but a great time, particularly in the Bay Area, to be a student, too. You had Mario Savio in Berkeley. You had all this kind of action that was happening here. You know, it was basically, you know, on your way to San Francisco, on your way to Bay Area, <laughs> on your way to California in that particular point in time. And so it was, it was very, I, I mean, I, there was nothing spectacular about me as a student. There was nothing in, in high school that suggested that, that anything, any of the things that had happened to me would happen to me. <laughs> the one thing I knew is that I knew that, that I, you know, that, you know, while, while that, there was something I was going to do in, in some sort of work that I was doing, whether it was working with children or whether it was working I knew I was going to do some some sort of work, and when I came to the Auto Cities and Office of Community Development, Office of Community Development, I worked in the mission, which we which was essentially only build the building on the coalitions that we had during the strike. So the co it was a really we talk about that strike was a very important strike because of the coalition building between progressive whites, African American, Asian American. Uh, Latinx Americans and all of the whole, the whole, the whole group, and I, I think that was part of the and and the discussion, the intense discussions, night after night. Of course, we were arrogant in some sense to believe that we wanted, but beyond beyond that, the fact that the the importance of the work that we did and the co and the importance of coalition building was something that I think that was pretty pretty phenomenal at that time. Yes. Yeah, you mentioned being in a city planning office in Berkeley. 
And we have with us a former mayor of Berkeley. And I think when people mention Bruce yeah. Newport's name, the first thing is he was former mayor of Berkeley. Although he's done incredible things beyond that. But tell us a little bit about your time as Berkeley uh, mayor. Okay. Well, you know, one thing, Mr. how Dan and I really got connected, Berkeley was the first city in the United States to divest from South Africa when I was mayor. Yeah. yeah. We put an initiative on the ballot, and it passed overwhelmingly. So the African National Congress made me an honorary member. <laughs> and um, Danny and Harry Belafonte were both very much involved in it, back and forth. Remember, they were ambassadors without portfolio from the United Nations in doing things. So then we went forward, and we had a coalition in Berkeley, too, at that time. It was um, Filipinos, Asians, Latinos, Blacks, progressive whites. And we began looking at planning from a perspective that cities don't seem to do anymore. It used to be the time when you had to create a city general plan or master plan every five years. If you can find me one city now that's done it in 20 or 30 years, be something. But what we did, we worked with the Institute for the Study of Social Change at the University of California at Berkeley. It was run by Troy Duster, who's the grandson of Ida B. Wells. And we got the data and stuff. So we reformed our police department. It wasn't cutting it, we reformed it. We looked at when crime was the heaviest, from, you know, from six to like four o'clock, then up to midnight, and then, you know, after hours, it was less. And so you put a number of people on that you thought. But we also taught them how to treat people with respect. If you remember, when I was the mayor was when Ronald Reagan closed the mental health institutions in California, and all those people started coming to the Bay Area. Of course, at first, the police started beating on them. I said, no, uh When we reorganized them, we hired mental health workers to ride with police. Mm. We went and got yellow school buses and put them on a marina and put portable showers in them so people could sleep in them. Got them a postal box so they could apply for SSI. Mm -hmm. And I let them use my conference room in City Hall for meetings and gave them the first hour of a city council meeting to begin to have an analysis of the kinds of things they had to do for me. That's what community is all mm -hmm. about, the beloved community. And it was amazing, some of the ideas that came from the homeless people and people who had been victims of that. I mean, I started getting messages from around the world because people who had been lobotomized saw some of this, and we passed a law against lobotomization also. And, you know, Americans just don't seem to understand. That's what gets me. History is not truly recorded in this country. That's a sad, sad, sad reality. It's like I was thinking today coming in here. Hi. <laughs> uh, I was coming in here. You know, uh, um, this is Black History Month. And I was saying to myself, well, we've been without history forever. I mean, as a matter of fact, there's no history written about what this country really is. You know, you talk about a country that was invaded by the dregs of British society coming here to find something, and people believe that stuff. We don't hear anything about the indigenous people, the Native Americans who were here, who were people who were calm, who believed in the environment, who grew flowers and things in this land. We don't even talk about that. And when I bring it up, even to liberals, it seems like their neck is broke. They ain't got nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> now, when are we going to begin to get the facts and the truth to look at how we make this country what it should be? Right now, a shameful thing that's going on is a war in Ukraine. But this country has sent over $80 billion of weapons rather than NATO negotiating a peaceful solution between them and Warsaw. But Americans don't know about that. I used to be vice president from the U.S. to the World Peace Council, so I was enacting with the Matter of fact, I was nominated uh, the day that Nelson Mandela was released from prison to be president, but I had to live in Greece, and I didn't stay there. But I love the Greek people. I went to the top of Mount Olympus one time. It's another story. I got a picture where we get to the top. And they plant a flower, and they drove us up to 3,000 meters at first the night before. Then we walked up to the top. It was one of the few days the sky was clear and the, no clouds. And when I got up to the top, a woman who was with a television company carrying at those times a camera on her shoulder said, you bastard, you. I said, wait a minute, miss. I don't even know you. 
<laughs> she said, I took this assignment because I didn't think you'd make it to the top here. <laughs> <laughs> but we embrace, you know, in whatever else. But it's people all around the world who want peace. And what's that? You know, we got the largest military budget in the worst day of the world right now. Mm -hmm. We got military bases all around the world. Yeah. I mean, when you look at, you know, all these horrific shootings and things that are going on, we got 435 AR-15 rifles in the hands of Americans, more than we got people and stuff like that. Capitalism because controls our mindset and what makes those things happen and whatever else. And if we don't create that beloved community get together, what's going to be the future of the world? Because now when we look at what's happening with the climate change and all this, stuff, in which most politicians say there's no such thing. Well, I remember when they had, uh, were, were, were looking at the accord and Bishop Tutu had been at the one in Copenhagen. And after he attended that, they said, Bishop Tutu, you and the rest of the world have just agreed that we need climate you know, uh, correction and this and that, whatever else. He said, how do you go about that? She said, look what you did, what you all did in South Africa. You went through a truth and reconciliation. Kind of thing. He said, look, you got disagreement and racism with people over there. It takes time to negotiate that. He said, but we ain't got but one world. Mm. And if we don't take care of the climate here, we can all kiss our so-and-so goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's so much we got to learn to be objective and analytic in this net for the good. And what we hope for is a better society for the next generation. Yes. Danny and I worked in, in New Orleans after Katrina. Danny and Harry Belafonte did a fundraiser that raised a million dollars. And Senator uh -huh. A. Dennis, who was the co-chair of CORE, yeah. Congress for Racial Equality, and myself there. And we tried to get people from the federal government who worked in the Institute of Mental Health to send people down there to engage some of the people. They told me, the federal government, oh, it would take us six or seven months because we're a bureaucracy to even uh, process that. Danny used to come down several days a week, and we just walked down the street, and somebody recognized Danny, and Danny would hug him. And they said, oh, you made my day. These are people who lost everything out in the streets or whatever else. It takes that kind of love and what understanding. And I remember, and uh, in, 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 in I go up to uh, uh, Seattle, the islands right up there, with Jerry Milhound, who's here, thriving communities, once a year, and they take films and this and that. And last year, at a meeting, we were having a discussion. He'd taken some films of a lot of people informally incarcerated. And one of these young guys was just brilliant. And he said, and they had put their, together their own college studies in prison, whatever else. And he came out and he said, when we come out, it's all about healing. Yeah. And some white liberals jumped up and said, no, it's about community. I said, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Community, we understand, but healing is first and foremost. If we can heal and then take the next steps, it's a learning process that makes us respect and aspire to that which God supposedly created this earth for and everything else and whatever else. That's what we're trying to get to. That's the love we're trying to find. Speaking of love, I want to go back to something else you did as mayor of Berkeley in terms of the LGBT community. Could you right. tell us, weren't you the first? Yeah. Um, you know, as you know, going back to the flower children and whatever else and this and that, those were the days. But, of course, we know we had equal respect for gays and lesbians and such or whatever else. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid growing up in Rochester, you know, we had a couple of gay guys in our neighborhood, two very sharp guys, workers. And whenever our parents needed babysitters, they'd bring them over. We had full trust. And they insisted that we kids go to college in this net go to school in there. So when I came out here and when the LGBT movement was really started, and I got to know Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was one of the greatest civil rights speakers I ever got to know. Mm. I was sitting in the building next to him at HEW the day he was assassinated in Moscone. And it was just frightening. But anyway, his replacement, uh, I can't think of his name right now, who was a gay guy. Britt. who was a, uh, Harry Britt. Harry Britt, who was a minister, came to me and said, we were going to put on the ballot domestic benefits for gays. And then Diane Feinstein was appointed mayor after Moscone was assassinated. She went to the Catholic Church and stopped it. He came and said, we believe that you're the only mayor in the United States that might be able to do it. So I went to the Central Labor Council over in Alameda County and said, we're going to put this on the ballot. And the head of the Central Labor Council said, well, Gus, you know, a lot of the old boys might balk at it, but you're always there with us. You've got our vote. 
I sent a couple of my staff down to the state capital, Sacramento, to look at the actuary tables and see if it was going to really raise the cost, as they said. Found out, no, we put it on the ballot. Holly Neer, who was one of the great singers, Jane Fonda, all came and campaigned for it. We passed it, the first in the country, domestic benefits for partners. Mm -hmm. So it's thinking about what we can do for the good of all people all the time. Uh, Danny, you've raised questions at times about what it means to be a citizen. I'm sorry? You raised the question at times about what it means to be a citizen. Yeah. I, I, the, I mean, each generation, I think Paul, Paul Wilson said each generation makes its own history yes. and is judged by the history that it makes. Right. And I, I, I think that, that one, one, of the, one of the incredible things for me was to be able to kind of um, be in a situation where there was constant, constant discourse in each generation, whether it's Harry Belafonte's generation, you know, Harry Belafonte tells the story of, 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 of being around Paul, Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois. And somebody mm -hmm. asked him at 19 years old, what did you do? He said, I'd go and get coffee and people. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, but to be, be, to be in, in, in that particular moment, you know, uh, in, in a movement, you know, if, I don't, if I'm not a part of the African Liberation Support Committee, which is a transition out of out of out of San Francisco State and student politics. The dynamics begin. If I don't become that, be a part of that, I don't become an actor. Ah, I don't become ah. an actor at all. There's no kind of it roadmap that leads me to the idea of thinking as actor. Just that only with that particular moment in time, where the art became a a a a, 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 a linkage. To real real life stories, when art itself, and I found the, the the writer that that I thought most identified with with the work that was, and, and the struggle itself, and I thought Fugard, ah yes, Fugard, the great yes. South African playwright, and so they gave you a sense of that, and and certainly the 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 uh, Zayt Mokai or, or the the, uh, the 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 actors in there played a very much a strong role in, in, in my decision to become an actor, you know. Uh, and I often think about it, you know, my life would have been different if I stayed in community development. My life would have been different. <laughs> I'd have been retired, and we'd be sitting around talking about old stories. <laughs> old stories are good. But the important thing is the bottom. Well, what are the new stories that are connected to the old right. stories and bring us into that? And... I, and, and, and uh, that 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 I think that's been the the blessing that I've had to be able to be in that particular moment. And who do you, who, I mean? You can think you're reading Mandela's words mm -hmm. in nineteen in, in, in nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty eight as a student. Little do you know that a movement would be happening. Yes. And you can say the same thing for Bob Moses uh, and others mm. who were who at a particular point in time. Little this movement happened to bring him to the the South. And bring him to the South and do the work that he did as well. But I think we all judge, we're all, uh, our histories are, are very important in, in bringing, bringing forth mm -hmm. and telling the truth. Yeah. Gus, if you have some, I, I have so many questions. To well, ask. go ahead and ask your question. Um, we're, follow, we're following your lead, brother. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't lead, we can't follow. <laughs> there are a couple of things I would like for the um, those who are gathered here to know. One would be your relationship with Malcolm X and what was happening with Malcolm yeah, yeah. in his last days. As I told you, um, I grew up in Rochester, New York. Uh, first in my family to finish high school, first to go to college. Wasn't really prepared, dropped out. I married young, and then I moved to another apartment, and a notice came for me to go get a physical for the draft. And I didn't pick up my mail until four or five days late, and the two days before I was to get this medical. So I do it and get on the train, go to Rochester, I mean to Buffalo for this physical, thinking we're all gonna come back. With 19 white guys from Brooklyn and myself, they put us on a train that night and sent us to Fort Knox, Kentucky, 
when we got there around midnight, they had a transport pick us up, take us to the bus station, wait for the military bus to pick us up. We go and sit down at the lunch counter and bring menus, and she passes out a menu to everybody but me. And the white boy said, well, where, where's, where's our brother's menu? We're going to fight for this country. That black boy can't eat here. She pointed to a restaurant across the hall, said black restaurant only, black toilet only, black waterfall. So I said, look here, welcome to America. <laughs> so that you begin to see things. But I get drafted, uh, put me into intelligence, send me to Heidelberg, Germany, coincidentally. I'd gone to Heidelberg University in Tiffin, Ohio, and these two were connected. <laughs> I go to Heidelberg, Germany, and they put me in intelligence. I started asking a whole lot of questions. I never passed the shooting, uh, learning to shoot, so they never gave me a weapon. <laughs> so when they used to have retreats, practicing for war, they say women, children, in Newport to the rear. <laughs> but then um, I started asking questions because they were testing atomic bombs in the, in the caves over there in Heidelberg, places like that. And I said, this is ridiculous. Why are you all doing this? They took my, finally took all my stuff and said, we're discharging you. It's going to be honorable, but get you the hell out of here. So the night before, the, the guys all had a thing. In the, in the day that a, they sent a command car to pick me up to take me to Frankfurt, Germany, the military band and 500 army um, uh, soldiers stood at attention and said, hail to the king. They said, but stay with him till he gets on the plane back to New Jersey. <laughs> and I got back there, and I reported it to my congressional office. They did an investigation and busted seven officers because they weren't taking the money they were collecting to pay the German workers for kitchen police and this that. They were taking our money and just, you know, things like that. But anyway, the civil rights movement's in full sway. Because of my family connections and what, I, I, I get elected to the... Uh, Monroe County Nonpartisan Political League, which is the biggest organization, to begin, again, even registering people to vote in a place like New York. You know, you remember, I mean, uh, Ron Carter, the great bassist, went to Eastman School of Music. He wrote his book. He said, Rochester, New York, up south. Mm. Talking about, you know, I mean, you got this kind of stuff wherever you go in this country, in the Bay, here in the Bay Area. I mean, let's face it. Don't be fooled by nobody thinking that this is so great that we don't have anything good. So... I'm in charge of this organization in a lot of police brutality. The first case, one in the federal court, the Rufus Farewell case happened in Rochester. I was in charge of that. He was closing the gas station one night, and two white police came up to him and said, boy, what you doing here? He said, I'm closing my gas station. Oh, nigga, this couldn't be your gas station. They beat him with an inch of his life. Put him in the hospital. I had to raise money for his family and whatever else. We won that case in a federal court. A few weeks later, the police invaded the black Muslim mosque in Rochester. And those of you who remember the name Daisy Bates, yes. Daisy Bates was in Rochester from Little Rock, Arkansas, organizing for the NAACP, and she had not gotten quite close. Malcolm X called her and said, Daisy, I'm coming to Rochester. Who should I be in touch with? She said, Gus Newport. So she gave him my phone number without me knowing it. You can imagine, Malcolm X called me, oh my God. We talked for two hours the first night, and then we talked every night for two weeks for two hours. He flew into Rochester on a February day. Rochester, New York is cold. It's on Lake Ontario, right across from Canada. In those days, planes landed on the tarmac, and they let the stairwell down, and then you get down and walk into the airport. So I'm in this, this airport, surrounded by all these white men in, in white shirts and ties and felt hats and whatever. I'm so young and naive that I'm thinking they're all businessmen waiting to catch a plane in New York. <laughs> Malcolm walks through the door. We hadn't seen each other. said, who's Eugene Gus Newport? I said, I am, sir. He said, young blood, you got the best tap telephone in America. This is all FBI here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So, so naturally the press was there and they wanted to interview him. And then we went to the jail to get the eight brothers who had been arrested, went up to meet the sheriff and had a, a, a meeting, a discussion with him, and he had an Eastern Star ring on, so Malcolm compared his because he had one too, and that's how he befriended him. Then we go to the court, and they let these guys off. But while we're sitting in the court, the sheriff, who was weighed about 500 pounds, <laughs> was sitting on the other side of the room 
and he fell asleep. And Malcolm, who was very comical, said, Brother Gus, the white fellow dropped dead. The power of our lives killed him. And then he, and, and, and he woke up. And Malcolm said, damn, I'll, I'll let him go. But, so we went over to a, a nonprofit organization called Baden Street Settlement with about 500 mainly black people gathered to get and talk about the problems of the day. And Malcolm walks in and people say, yay. But some of the Christian ministers said, no, we ain't gonna let him speak, he ain't one of ours. When the, com when the community starts saying, no, no, we're gonna hear him. And Malcolm starts out by saying, we have no reasons being divided. We're all victims of the same things. Yeah. And he gave one of the most brilliant speeches you ever saw. He came back and forth from Rochester and often used to tell me, as you can hear, I got a loud voice. Brother Eugene, don't, don't, don't shout too hard because, uh, you know, when you, your voice reaches out, it scares people to death. <laughs> he said, but I want you to process the stupidity of some of these Uncle Toms, what they're saying, out the left side of your brain, and on the right side, process what our strategy is going to be to take the next step. A mm. couple of years after that, I couldn't work in Rochester no more. They wouldn't let me because I was close to Malcolm. I was far left, so I moved down to New York. And I uh, went to work for IBM because I'd learned electric data processing in the military and stuff. And as fortune would have it, Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell became my mentors. Mm -hmm. yeah. Malcolm, if you remember when JFK was assassinated, the newspaper reported that he said, when they interviewed him, he said, the chicken's coming home to roost. They didn't hear the whole story. John F. Kennedy was running, getting ready to run for re-election. And he had made a pact. He was meeting with the head of the Ku Klux Klan and the head of the, the um, Muslim organization uh -huh. because they both wanted to have separate places in somewhere in Georgia or someplace. And Malcolm said, look, I may be pro-black, but I'm not anti-white. I don't want to be a part of that separation. So then... He told Elijah Muhammad that, but they said, we're sitting you down for 90 days because like everybody whose leadership wants to be doing what they can by through the capitalist politicians or whatever, 90 days came and gone. They didn't reinstate him. So Malcolm founded an organization called Muslim Mosque Incorporated. That didn't last too long. And then he asked me to help him create the organization of Afro-American Unity. And we did that. I traveled with Malcolm four days before he was assassinated. He had been invited to go back to Rochester after his house was firebound in Queens. And we flew to Rochester, and on the way there, we're sitting in three, three rows, the middle seat was empty. And Malcolm turns to me and said, Brother Gus, I'm a dead man. I said, Malcolm, what the hell are you talking about? He said, intelligence tells me there's a hit out on my life. He thought it was the, the brothers who owned the silver industry who a lot of people thought were responsible for JFK's assassination. I forget their names now. But anyway, we get to Rochester. He's invited to speak at Colgate Divinity, who really didn't know what real Islam was after he had changed to that. And he gave the greatest explanation, because he'd been put on the International Board of Islam in Geneva, Switzerland. Because, and then he spoke at Cornhill Methodist Church, a black church that night, and then allowed me to invite a whole lot of guys, and we sat up all night in his hotel room talking. The following morning, we flew back to New York, and we got to LaGuardia Airport. The chief of police and the fire marshal were there, and they met us, and Malcolm said, Malcolm, we're here because we believe you firebombed your own home. Malcolm had cleaned up his accent, his, his language and everything else after yeah. doing time in prison. But he called them two fellows some names I ain't never heard before. <laughs> and I thought their necks were broke the way they, they, their heads dropped. So they said, well, 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 this is sort of what our intelligence he said. Well, that just goes to show you how messed up you all are, FBI, et cetera, whatever else. His wife was there to pick him up. She was eight months carrying twins. And she took him downtown to a hotel to meet with uh, um, Haley, Alex Haley, who was writing his autobiography. And that was the last time I saw Malcolm. Oh, I got a... It's, it's so interesting sometimes when you just listen to, to Gus and his history and understanding, try to understand and finding the larger connection that you find with this King and Malcolm who, who can sit down with each other and talk about what the real history is. 
the real issue is the issue of economics. The real yes. issue is the yes. issue of the system itself, right. capitalism. Right. That becomes that. I mean, at one point in time, right. capitalism was a revolutionary way of looking and dividing resources. Right. Then it became something else than that. It brought people into the workplace. It brought another sense of consciousness and possibilities. Right. The system did that, in sure. a sense, because you go into the industrial world. There's nothing yeah. happened. Nothing happened, really. I mean, things happened, but not at the pace that happened after the Industrial Revolution, yeah. beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Would you all, would you all follow and, me and the first, I nominated Danny Glover for president of the United States? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no but, but, but you, 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 you look come at on, it. Baby, come you on, know, it, 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 what, what was slavery about? That's right. Come it, on, what was slavery man. about? You know, by, by the Bring 1840s, it. the United States states starting at a poor place, starting at the poor, a poor 13 colonies, by the 1840s was the most the most powerful country economically in the world, not militarily, but economically in the world, and that's that's fact. So the guy did, and that wealth was built as Paul Paul would often right. say, Rose said, always said, the wealth was built on the back right. of my ancestors. Yeah. No, Dorsey, you could get trying to give you something. Oh, no, oh. But you know, Danny brought up something else also when he wrote about Martin and Malcolm. History will tell you that they supposedly only met one time. And that was at the legislature when they were passing the, uh, whatever that act was, the uh, Voting Rights Act or something. 35 days before Malcolm was assassinated, we were at a meeting at Sidney Portier's place. Uh, Juanita Portier was there, his, his first wife, up in Westchester. Ozzie Davis, Ruby D were there, A. Philip Randolph, several other people. Uh, Clarence Jones, who was Malcolm's lawyer. Martin, I mean Martin's Martin lawyer. lawyer. Martin was on the phone in Florida because he'd been arrested once again for demonstrating. <laughs> and it was agreed, first of all, Juanita, who knew Malcolm quite well, and you must understand, Malcolm had fair skin, red hair. Malcolm's mother was half white. Supposedly she got raped by a white man in, in Jamaica or something where she came from. It was decided, so, so Juanita starts by Malcolm had just, after he went on the Hajj, he uh, stopped to meet several heads of states, Nehru and others, and this and that, and they decided we're going to make a complaint to the United Nations. So Juanita starts off first by saying, Malcolm, I thought you said you were going to stop calling white folks devil. <laughs> Malcolm has, he said, I'm a, let me tell you a story. He said, I am. He said, but I uh, was on a lecture he debated at Oxford University in, in London, and he was debating this guy and really beating him. He was supposed to be one of the top scholars. And the guy stopped and said, Malcolm, I thought you was going to stop calling white people devils. Malcolm hesitated for about 45 seconds. He says, I am, but who's going to replace you? <laughs> and the place is cracked up, is cracked up laughing. <laughs> so when we were at uh, Portier's place this day with uh, Martin on the phone, it was agreed that Malcolm, who used to go to the United Nations often to meet with people from Africa and other places around the world, was going to go to the United Nations to file a suit against American hegemony, imperialism, and colonialism. And Martin Luther King, on the other phone, said, and I'll be there a second with you, brother, because they had met and stayed in touch all the time. That phone we found out when we were trying to make a film about it was Wiretap by J. Edgar Hoover. 35 days later, Malcolm X is dead. The FBI, the role it played in Cohen Pro telling these near things, even when I was the mayor of Berkeley, they tried to be, get um, my background checked because we wanted to write a book, and they didactic 85% of it. So I went and asked Troy Duster at the Institute and said, Troy, what's this all about? What I do? He said, it ain't about what you did, it's what they did. <laughs> so that's the things we have to understand. And that's how Danny and I really got connected to the whole apartheid movement and this and that and whatever else. And when I left the project called Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, they threw a fundraiser, 3,000 people came, and that's when they first introduced a film by Leah Mahan, who I call the Minister of Information. Uh, <laughs> the, the film is Holding Ground, and, and she's one of the great young filmmakers of, of, of our time. But it's, again, all those things. And... Um, you know, Danny flew from South Africa 
to that thing to to be, to be at this event. Him and my mother, I didn't even know they were coming. But it, it's things like that that bring us together, you understand. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered your question, brother. Yes, <laughs> yes I think you did. <laughs> but we have some questions from those who are gathered here on Zoom. But before we do that, I do want to just emphasize again your extraordinary work with the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, uh, which is in Roxbury. And this was a community where people from the outside would come and dump garbage. Um, landlords who did not live in the community would set their right. place to fire arson. And in one instance, somebody was killed because of the arson fire and so on. And Gus went there and served as the executive and it's amazing what happened there in terms of the transformation. And in terms of beloved community, right. it was, you had people from the Cape Verde Islands, you had black people, white people, you had intergenerational movement yeah. and organizing. And it was just amazing. And the filmmaker is here. Um, so, and this extraordinary film is called uh, Holding Ground, and the young people involved were so amazing, they continued to work, and there's a second film called Gaining Ground, which shows how the young people who were involved initially have become leaders in yeah. Boston. Right. Uh, they went to college, those who had no aspirations to go to college went to Dartmouth and elsewhere. So that's the kind of work across lines, uh, the beloved community yes, that you've been involved with. Yeah. Now, there have been several questions. I'm going to try to combine them. I'm going to ask Danny, one, what, could you tell us one of the most positive things, developments you've seen in your lifetime, one of the most positive developments that you've seen in your lifetime? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I was born in 1946. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> that was a good year. I was born in <laughs> That was a good year. I was born in 1946. <laughs> Certainly, um, um, I, 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 I think watching my, watching my parents become politicized was the first sense of where I wanted to be in my life, watching that, I think it, and uh, I, I, it's, it's hard, to, it's hard to say, but of course, we, we, we're, we're, in a, we're in a society, in a system that is, is, is about accumulating wealth. Yes. It's about that, it, it is about that, you know, and it's finding different ways in which uh, the equating that, you know, I don't know when, when, when Gus talks about the beloved community and how do we reach that particular point and at that, um, I, I think we've made certain, certain inroads into that, but there's so much work, more work to do. I think anything that most important is that the continued work happens with those of us who've been engaged in, 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 and those who are yet to become engaged as well. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for that response. Yeah. We just entered Black History Month. Um, and to me, it's very interesting that the first day of the month, of this Black History Month, there was a funeral for Tyree Nichols. Mm. So we've come a long way, but we've still got a long way to go. So what gives you hope? Um, and what would you say to young organizers about uh, continuing their work toward beloved community. What gives you hope? What sustains you in your work? Well, it's certainly got to be analytic. I mean, we don't look at the details of what is corrupting and continues to manifest corruption in the practices of this country, whatever else. Uh, certainly the wealthy, the middle class from whomever. I mean, Look at not only the slave trade. I mean, I think about it's an awful thing when you think about in the Holocaust, Jews lost six million people. At the same time, the Second World War, Russia lost 20 million. Okay. Blacks lost 100 million in the slave crossing. Yes. History does not tell that. So you see, when you bring it up again, white folks in general, I'm not going to point any fingers, just drop their heads like the next were broken or something. <laughs> But let's face the facts and let's understand how we correct and clean up these conditions and these situations so we can all live side by side. 
and stop putting so much money into the military industrial complex so that we can create war throughout, et cetera, whatever else, because we're only a few steps short from a worldwide war now. It's, yes. It's time 90 seconds. See, here's somebody, my God, I ain't got time to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but understand the reality in, 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 in looking at it. And we've got to engage and bring young people along. We're 42nd, 43rd in the world now in literacy and education, these United States of America. Why? Because capitalism is so corrupting that they remove certain things. When I was a kid, I'll be 88 in a couple of months. When I was a kid, they used to have in schools, in grammar school, music, art, geometry, all those things that allowed you to think all, all that stuff has been cut aside. They now, through the federal government, teach kids in school to pass a test, not how to learn to have an analysis of yes. it, things like that. The sad thing is our education system was changed under Jimmy Carter, who I think is one of the better presidents we ever had. But he was debating Reagan and Nixon and them people and, 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 and was reacting to them. So now we got to relook it again. I mean, we took music out of the schools. Music is such a development force. It's a spiritualization, et cetera, whatever else, this and that. And there's those basic things. I mean, look at the, on the world charts, the countries that they claim are the happiest countries, Norway, mm -hmm. the Nordic countries and places like that, which I got to visit when I was with the World Peace Council, et cetera, whatever else. Why don't we learn to practice what some of those things are about in other places and learn to put it in place right here in our own country? It's interesting, this woman has a dog right there. That dog means so much to her. And, uh, and, but, 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 but see, all those things we have to honor in whatever else. It's about love, you know what I'm saying? But not making people who are well-educated, wealthy, thinking they have all the knowledge anyway. You're going to tell me that Leon Musk and some of them people, them multi-billionaires or something, are people of decency? Hell no. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying to those guys. <laughs> but, but you know what? We're, 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 we're preaching to the choir right now. <laughs> you know, but what did Martin say? Martin said, you got to preach to the choir, man. Everybody stop singing, you know, if you don't, you know. Let me but say we, that. We, as, we, as a minister, sometimes the huh? choir does really need preaching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, um, the the fact that we, we're in, in the, it, it's, Gus has laid out just brilliantly, it's just, we're in this place, this situation right now. We're in the on the preface of being able to destroy this incredible, right. yeah. you know, just incredible uh, experience of human beings, human beings finding, fighting together, just trying to understand what kind of world do we want to be coming together, yeah. and um, I think we're 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 in that. Place we're sitting here. I'm looking at a bunch of faces, people who've been in the struggle and continue to be in the struggle, and finding their way of trying to find the connecting points. And uh, uh, we have to continue to do that. You know, we have to continue to do that. Right. You know, we have to reach out all the places. It's interesting. We are here this evening. Because Denise Michaud uh, came to visit my, with her sister, Ann Jess, uh, a, a few months ago. And Ann had been trying to get her to meet. Ann lives up in Seattle where I go up once or twice a year. And after a while, Denise said, you know, would you care to speak to the Commonwealth Club? Well, you know, I said, who going to ask a country boy like Gus Newport to speak? <laughs> <laughs> but I said, yeah, I guess so. She said, well, what about Danny Glover, too? I know he's your good friend. So I picked up the phone, called Danny, and... Danny said, yes, we got him right on the phone, and here we are now. It's been a struggle of some way, but we're here. So you all give credit to Denise for us being here. Okay. What advice could you give to young organizers? One of the things that we're hearing a lot of, we, I'm with the National Council of Elders, an organization that was found people 65 and over by Vincent Harding, who was Martin Luther King's speechwriter, who, who wrote the speech, Time to Break the Silence Against the Vietnam War, one of the most beautiful ministers and people I know. 
And um, he said, we're going to bring people from all walks that were in movements, feminist movement, LGBTQ, human rights, civil rights, uh, atmosphere, etc. you name it. But he said, we got to create an arc to the next generation because of their knowledge on technical capabilities and that. And they're the ones going to carry out the next movement. Well, we have a retreat twice a year at Haley Farm where the Children's Defense Fund is, and we bring so many young people. And in our last meeting in last October, they said they were terribly disturbed about the status of nonprofit organizations right now, the role that they're playing in this country. And I understand what they're saying because when I got involved in community and economic development, a lot of nonprofits that were building so-called affordable housing did not engage people in the communities. They just built housing. But they didn't look. There was no grocery stores. There was no this and that. They thought they knew it all. When I said, well, you got to engage people. Oh, I'm not. I'm on, I'm on developed housing. I'm not here to engage people. That's the kind of mentality among racists, so-called liberals and stuff that we ran into. And so we tell them have to know to engage and understand the analysis of depth of what is needed to make the quality of life. It's not that we're trying to live next door to anybody who want to live together closely. And as he went back saying that we found out such strategies as people who are developers come into communities of color and use them as dumping grounds. Because usually you don't have any political clout in these things. When we ran Dudley Street, the mayor who's going for re-election said he wanted to be the mayor of the community. So they weren't doing anything to stop this dumping. So we went down to his campaign headquarters because people used to bring their old cars and they died and park them in our streets too. We got a thousand bumper stickers and put them on those cars. Then we called the media. They came out and did a story. And he came and said, oh my God, these people are organized. <laughs> so he passed legislation and sent trucks down there because a lot of this was on vacant lots and stuff. We used to clean those vacant lots up, the rocks and the debris and all that on the weekend. At the end of the day, we'd have a little barbecue and music. Then we went to flower shops and got wild flowers, and we built, the, planted those flowers. And where there was blight, then there becomes beauty. That was the spirit. That's short-term organizing. Well, we began to come together a master plan of how to interact, what kind of housing should be, so many stories, where there should be small businesses. We even created a co-op amongst the small business stores so they could sell goods at the same price that the big stores, you know, would, that, that people used to have to go out of town for and all those kinds of things. That's not thought about by planners and organizers. I've questioned myself. What's being taught, what was being taught in planning schools? And, you know, I applied to go to graduate school at both UC Berkeley and MIT. Both of them told me, brother, you can come here and teach but we're not going to let you come here and you're going to challenge and say something about this. And that. I mean, I find the guy, I got a couple of honorary doctorates, you know, this and that. But they told me, yeah, I could, I could teach, but I couldn't come there and be a student because I might challenge some of their curriculum and stuff. Now think about that. Two major great institutions, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of California, Berkeley. And I went to Harvard for a thing one time. And let's not talk about Harvard, you know, own more slaves than any university in the country. Didn't talk about George Washington. George Washington, between him and Martha, had 138 slaves. Thomas Jefferson, 600. So let's clarify the land and create a kind of community that is love and development and analysis, wide open eyes in this land, that makes it better so the next generation can pursue the society that will help America become a country that is not co-opting everything and creating wars, et cetera, and everything else. Well... I think we've come to the end of our time, just about. But um, I want to say that as we were talking earlier about capitalism and, so, and beloved community, again, Martin Luther King was influenced in this concept of beloved community by an Alan Knight Chalmers, who was influenced by Josiah Royce. Uh, Alan Knight Chalmers was a professor at Boston University when Martin Luther King was a student, and he wrote a book, That Revolutionary Christ, where he talked about the beloved community several times. So Martin Luther King, near the end of his life, also said that the beloved community that we aspire to could not be achieved through our current system of capitalism. Right. He, he made that point. It's very important. Yeah. He also raised a question many, many years ago and said to his wife, Coretta, he really saw himself 
as a social democrat. Uh, so right. those interesting things to know about Dr. Dr. King. Right. In one of our meetings, Gus, of the National Council of Elders, somebody brought up the question. They talked about a book, which I haven't had a chance to read, but the title of the book is Hope as a Discipline. Hmm. How profound and provocative for us to think about that hmm. because hope is essential yes. to the beloved community, yes, to yes. aspiring to the community. So I want to leave with that and then a quote from Martin Luther King in terms of beloved community. And he's talking about our responsibility to, to, to make that journey. And he said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. Mm -hmm. If you can't walk, then crawl. <laughs> but whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.